Carter Report presents worship from the Community Adventist Fellowship in Glendale, California. A special welcome to all of our viewers in North America and our new friends and churches in Russia. Today you'll enjoy uplifting music and the preaching of the everlasting gospel by pastor, teacher, and evangelist John Carter. Please get your Bible and study the Word of God with us today. Thank you for joining us for Worship and Praise.
I want to give a very special welcome to our viewers, particularly on Three Angels Broadcasting, to our friends Danny and Linda Shelton, and our supporters across the United States. Today I'm going to speak on Revelation 14, which is a chapter about the 144,000 virgins and the six angels. Not just the three angels, but six angels are actually mentioned in the book of Revelation chapter 14. This chapter talks about God's last message. It gives us good news about the Creator God, our Redeemer, and our Judge. It gives a very clear definition and description of the true church. And it contains finally a picture of the final holocaust and the deliverance of God's people or the saints. And so if you would please, as you always do, take your Bible and turn to the book of Revelation or the Apocalypse, chapter 14. And we consider, many of us consider that this chapter is the very heart of the Apocalypse. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1 says, then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion. The Mount Zion here is in, in heaven, it's not on this earth. A lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. I want you to read the rest of these verses, at least the first portion here of this chapter down to verse 5. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. So this is a scene in glory. This is a picture, not of the church militant, but this is a picture of the church triumphant. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile or no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. This is a picture of the final redeemed company who lived during the time of the final test. These are the people who endure the seven last plagues and who are finally triumphant on Mount Zion in heaven in the kingdom of God. It is very, very significant that this verse, this description of the last company, God's last church on the face of this earth, it is significant that the first verse talks about the Lamb because this company is seen with the Lamb. Because the only way that this company can be saved is through the blood of the Lamb. The most important doctrine in the Bible, and the Bible is full of important doctrines, but the most important doctrine, my beloved Christian friend, is the doctrine of the substitutionary death of the Lamb of God for our sins. 
we are going to discover today, as I believe you have already discovered, but we will rediscover it, that a Christian is not saved by attainment, but a Christian is saved by the blood of the atonement. Every person here is familiar with the Exodus, how the people of, of God, the children of Israel, the Hebrews, came out of the land of bondage. These are God's people, God's Israelites, who too have come out of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. And as the ancient Hebrews were saved by the blood of the Passover lamb, so this illustrious group, the 144,000, are saved by the blood of the lamb. There's no other way that you and I can be saved. You know the story, do you not, how God sent a message to Moses that those who wished to be saved were to place the blood over the door. And then the angel of death winged his way through the land. And as the angel of death looked down, the only homes that were saved and preserved were those homes that had the blood of the, over the door. I tell you today, there is no other way that you and I can be saved but through the blood of the Lamb. We will never get to heaven by trying to climb up the quaking sides of Mount Sinai because it is an impossibility. We cannot be saved by obedience to the law or because we are good enough. This group here that is saved in the kingdom of God is saved because of the Lamb. It's very, very important that you and I be under the blood of the Lamb. And we are told their number, 144,000. And as we have pointed out in previous Sabbath morning meetings, this number is certainly not to be taken literally. And when we discussed the great chapter on the 144,000, when we talked about Revelation chapter 7 and other passages, we discovered that the mark in their foreheads is not to be taken literally. The seal is not to be taken literally. The word Israelite is not to be taken literally. Neither is the number 144,000. It is a symbolic number that represents those who are saved in the last days and who make up the kingdom of God. And in the last days, I believe that God is going to have a great multitude. In fact, I believe that the 144,000 are a great multitude whom no man can number, as I pointed out in our sermon on Revelation chapter 7. But the Bible tells us something of great importance about this illustrious group of saved sinners. The Bible says that these people have the Father's name in their foreheads. This chapter is a parallel chapter to chapter 13. Chapter 13 talks about the last great conflict and that conflict, my brother, my sister, is about the law of God and how a person ought to worship God. Every person, irrespective of his beliefs, is a worshipper. And in the last days, the destiny of the world is going to revolve around the issue of worship. 
and in Revelation 13, the vast majority worship the beast and get the mark of the beast, the name of the beast in their foreheads. But these people, the 144,000, get the seal of God in their foreheads, which is the same as the name of God. The name of God. What does the name of God represent? It represents at least two important truths. Number one, ownership. God has put his name on their foreheads because God says, I own these people. Don't you touch them. God says, I have sealed them. They are now eternally safe. He says to the devil, don't you touch them. They are mine. They cannot be lost. They are saved for eternity, are these people. So it represents ownership that they are finally saved for eternity and nothing can change that situation. And number two, the name of God represents something else. In the days of the Bible, a person's name was of great significance. Today, it is no longer so. A rose by any other name would smell as sweet, we say. So what's in a name in the, in the Bible? A name has a great deal to say. Jacob had a special name because he was a supplanter. And every time somebody called him Jacob, it was rubbing the salt in the wound of his deceit. And so names are significant. And the Bible says that these people have the name of God in their foreheads. I want you to notice a passage that is very, very important. When you think about the name of God, and that is found here, dearly beloved, in Exodus 33. And it's the story of the meeting of God with Moses. Exodus 33 and verse 18. Please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. You know why? Because we're sinners. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be when my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And then you come to the next chapter, chapter 34 and verse 5. Then the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. The people who have the name of God in their foreheads are people who by the grace of God have become like him in their character. Mm. Almost too hard to believe. The Lord God, gracious and merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. When I was in Texas, I had an experience that has never left me. 
a young woman who had been in great trouble and who had left the church, had come back into the church. I knew her mother and her father very well. Knew the mother well, but I knew the father even better because he was somewhat of a colleague and I had great respect for him. He was a man who never criticized. Such a rare person. But I never heard, and from that day to this, I've never heard in my association with him, I've never heard him criticize anybody. I've never heard him put people down or be harsh. And he is a warm, caring, loving person that I grew to appreciate. And this young woman who had left the church and was just coming back to church, she said, Pastor Carter, I would want to go to heaven. I've come to the place where I want to go to heaven because if God is like my father, heaven would be a good place. Now the Bible says, and we read the verse, that they sing a great song. And nobody else can learn the song except the 144,000. Nobody can sing that song because no group of people have had such a deliverance. Such, it even is greater than the, the deliverance of the children of Israel through the Red Sea. And because here are a people saved by the blood of the Lamb... A people who look to God and who have become like God in compassion and mercy and in decency. And these people see the earth devastated by the seven last plagues. They see the streets run with blood. They see the enforcement of the mark of the beast. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. I hope one day to sing that song, don't you? Amen. They are conquerors. And the Bible tells us, and it's amazing how people get all caught up on these texts. The Bible says that they are virgins. And, the Bible, and there are commentators say, this is true, you may find it hard to believe. There are theologians with their heads bursting with knowledge, but no wisdom. There are th great theologians who say, these are a literal 144,000 Jews who've never got married. And that's why they're so godlike. Because they haven't had teenagers to make them mad. I guess what, that's how it must be. That's, that's nonsense. That's hogwash. These are people who haven't committed spiritual adultery. Mm -hmm. They are spiritually virgins. The Bible says that when a person joins himself in spirit to the world, that he is an adulterer. You see? These are people who have not, wait for this, they have not prostituted their souls for financial, political, or spiritual gain. The Bible says they have not slept with the great whore because they have maintained their spiritual purity. And the Bible says they 
are virgins. They have maintained their integrity because the day is coming when they are going to be married to the Lamb. You see? The marriage supper of the Lamb is coming up and they have kept themselves to the Lamb. Uh, incidentally, this is only a sub-clause, but it, it gives you some idea, incidentally, what God thinks about premarital sex and extramarital relationships. The Bible tells us that these people have kept themselves. The bride has kept herself for the Lamb. And that is how it ought to be in all our relationships down here on this earth, too. These people, of course, they couldn't, they're married or it doesn't matter, that's not the point. But the point is that they have not committed spiritual adultery. And the Bible says, in their mouth is found no guile. They are without fault before the throne of God. When it says guile, listen carefully to this. The Greek word is deceit. The Bible says that they are people who are not liars. In their mouth is found no guile. They are not liars. In fact, in another passage of the Apocalypse, I think chapter 22, it says that outside the city are all liars. A practicing liar cannot be saved. Is there no hope for a liar? Yes, there's hope for a liar. There's hope for an adulterer. There's hope for a sexual pervert. There's hope for any person who will come to Christ. But my friend, the Bible tells me that I must confess and forsake my sins and where I have sinned publicly or against a person, I will not receive forgiveness until I go to that person and confess my sin. Did you know that is the teaching of the Bible? That if you or I have stolen, it's not enough to come into church and come forward in an altar call and say, God, please forgive me. Because God doesn't forgive you until you return what you've stolen. That's what the Bible says. That's the teaching of the Word. It says that the thief must restore. And if you have lied about a person, if you've gossiped about a person, if you've told falsehoods about a person, come to God and confess it, but you will not be saved or justified until you go to the person and humbly confess to his face that you have lied about him, else there is no forgiveness. Forgiveness is only received when I confess to God and then I make it right. Did you know this? And this is something awful to tell you that a book has been published that I have and you can get in any large bookstore and it talks about the morals of this wonderful nation that was raised up by God it is the most scientific research that has ever been done in the history of the world on the morals of a people. And it tells us that 93% of us are habitual liars. 
It says it. 90, and, and it's not exaggerating, it is believed, it is recognized that 93% of people are liars, but I want to be with the 7% because I want to be with the 144,000. I tell you, my friend, now this may get close to you and you may say the preacher today is meddling. I haven't started yet. Let me tell you something. Lying is an abomination in the sight of God and we live in a world of liars where the newspapers are filled with lies and people believe it is their divine right to slander and to break down people's characters. Those people will not be saved unless they're born again and they confess that monstrous sin. I say to you today, every one of us ought to hate the sin of lying. I have a friend back in Australia that I've referred to before, Keith Johansson, one of the most honest men I've ever met. He said to me, John, whenever I do business, it's on the shake of a hand. He said, I do not need an attorney, though I think he may. He said, I believe if I tell you something that you will get it because I have promised it. And he quoted the old saying that I think everybody person here would appreciate. A man is as good as his word. If you make a promise, and if you fail to keep that promise, when it is in your power to fulfill that promise, you are a liar and you will not be saved until you redeem that promise. You say, this is too strong and it's too harsh. Do you want to go to hell or do you want to go to heaven? Let us know what the Bible teaches on this. I don't know any sin that is worse than lying. In my humble opinion, it is possibly the worst of sins because I know people who lie so much and I know them, they lie so much that they believe that they're telling the truth, they have become pathological liars. They will make the most outlandish promises and they'll tell you anything and they believe that they're telling the truth when in fact their whole lives are lies. This is a very, very serious thing and the Bible says in the mouths of these people there was found no lies. I want to tell you how I feel about this. If I tell you something and it's in my power, you come to me and you say, Pastor Carter, and I give you my promise, and I'm not talking about my forgetting or something like that, but I'm talking about doing willfully, and I break my promise, I have become a scoundrel and a cheat and a hypocrite, and so have you if you do those sort of things. I was at a board meeting not in this part of the world. I was the chairman of the board as the pastor. I'd only got to this church and in the conversation it came up that there was a young woman that was going to be employed by the church as a secretary and the church had promised her 
a certain salary. They said, we're going to pay you so much, she was depending on it. And one of the elders got up and said, she's working for us now. I know that she can't afford to leave and we don't have to pay her as much as we promised because we didn't put it in writing. He said, what can she do? I said, she can go to heaven when you're going to go to hell. And he resigned as an elder, thanks be to God. If he hadn't have resigned, I would have suggested that he be placed under church censorship as a liar and as a cheat. I don't care if you got it in writing or not. I don't care. It is what you and I say. A Christian will tell the truth. The Bible says, in their mouth was found no guile. They are without fault before the throne of God. These are people who have been justified by the blood of Jesus. These are people who had no righteousness in themselves, but now they do have righteousness in themselves. Did you know that? They now have righteousness in themselves because that which was imputed to them is now theirs inherently because they are now in heaven. They're glorified. So here the saints of God are home in glory. And not only have they been justified, but they have been glorified. And they are without fault before the throne of God. Lest you think I'm being too hard on liars, let me tell you, Jacob was a liar. But God changed his name to Israel. Jacob deceived his brother. Who was, who was his father? Who was the father of Jacob? Isaac. And remember when Isaac was an old man, how Jacob got dressed up and put lots of hairs on his hands, and the old father said, the hands are the hands of Esau, but the voice is the voice of Jacob. What a cheat, what a cad, what a liar what a hypocrite but God turned that man by grace from Jacob into Israel and he became the father of the great nation of Israel so God can take a liar God can take a hypocrite God can take a moral iceberg God can take a religious humbug and turn him into a child of God Amen. so there's hope for every person today there's hope for the liars there's hope for the adulterers but there's only hope when we come to Christ and let God work on our hearts come now to the great message of the Bible Revelation 14 and verse 6 and onwards dear people God's last message of love to the sons of men. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, a messenger, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. 
Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark in his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Do we believe in hell? Do we believe in the torment of hell? Sounds like it. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image. And whoever receives the mark of his name, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That message, my dear friend, is God's last message for Los Angeles and North America and the world. It is the message that is preached by God's last church. It starts as it should, not with the beast, but with the lamb. It starts with the proclamation of the everlasting gospel. What is the gospel? It is the good news. It is not good advice. It is not advice, Jay, on how to live. It's not advice on how to have a good marriage. It is good news. News is about something that someone has done. That's what news is. There is good news that someone has done something good. Over in Russia at present, and I'm very interested in this because we've been asked to go to St. Petersburg if we can raise the budget. And at present it doesn't look too good because it would cost half a million dollars. But there is that great city crying out, for God, they're having over there the Goodwill Games. And incidentally, the Russians are winning. Even though their nation has collapsed, they're still winning. It's amazing. But in the Goodwill Games, do you know who wins? <clears throat> the fastest. The most skilled. The most talented. The race in the Goodwill Games in St. Petersburg is to the swift. It is to the, the most, uh, the best trained. It is the person who is the most self-disciplined. The winner in, in Russia, my friend, is to the person who can run the fastest and the person who can swim the fastest. But as far as God is concerned in the gospel, the race is not to the fastest or the best looking or the most highly trained. The gospel or the good, the good news games. Let me talk about the good news game, the good will games. If you're the best, you'll win. But the good news games say, if you are weak, 
and if you're a cripple, and if you know you can't, and if you're a failure, but if you trust in Jesus, I will count you a winner. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. I heard a great song that we used to sing, I was once a loser. I was a loser. Can I tell you something? Every person here today, every person in the world is a loser because we lost it when Adam sinned. I'm not a loser just because I've lost it. It was lost before I was even born. But Jesus has won the games. Over in St. Petersburg, people get the prize because of their attainment. But none of us get the prize because of our attainment. We get the prize because of his atonement, which is credited to our account. That's the good news. What is the qualification to be a winner in the good news game. What is the qualification? What is the basic qualification so that I can be counted a champion? How can I be counted God's champion? By trying hard and by running fast? No. By saying, Lord, here I am. I'm a sinner. I am a Jacob. I am a liar. I am a cheat. I am a flake. I am a commandment breaker. I am not good enough. I am not a man but a worm, as David said. And coming to the cross where every person is equal and we become winners because Jesus stands in our place and for us. And that is the gospel. And so, today, if you're a loser, and you are, and I am, we're all losers. Now, you know, that goes exactly the very opposite to the way the world talks. I'm okay, you're okay, isn't it wonderful? Aren't we beautiful people? You know, those folks just don't go to any funerals, because that's where we're all going. Did you know that we're all simply animated mud? We're animated mud on the way to dust. That's all we are. We are animated mud on the way to dust. And except by the grace of God, we are naught but planetary eczema. That's all we are, a planetary eczema and naught but potential fertilizer. One day, if the Lord doesn't come soon, you and I are going to be simply fertilizing the earth and helping the daisies to grow. Is it true? Yeah. But the Bible tells me that I am a champion because our champion won the battle. That's the gospel. Then the Bible says, worship him who made heaven and earth. I am not only redeemed by the blood, but I have a father. I have a father who made me. Let me tell you something, and I hope I can tell this to you humbly. This will take some effort, but let me try to work up my more humble part of my nature. I think it's coming in now. Let me tell you something. You heard about the monks, you know, who are very proud of their humility. Most of us are like that. The president of the St. Peter's, let me tell you this for the glory of the gospel. 
the glory of the gospel. The president of St. Petersburg came to see me when I was in Nizhny Novgorod on behalf of the church of St. Petersburg to ask me to run that campaign. But unknown to me, obviously, he went to the leaders of the church. He spoke to Vitaly, Pastor Vitaly, and he said, why is it that so many people here are coming to the meetings? Why do they come night after night such as we've never seen in the history of Russia? Why are so many thousands of people baptized? What is the difference? And Vitaly said, because people come here and they don't just hear about the doctrine, they hear about the blood. And he said, their hearts are broken in the meetings. He said, the Russians have their hearts broken in the meetings and then they are healed. He said, we can have 10,000 atheists come at 7 o'clock and at 10 past 8 we have 10,000 people praising God. Why is it? It is the preaching of the gospel that breaks the hard stony heart. It is the power of God to salvation. And then you have the message here of the judgment. I believe in the judgment. Let me say it plainly. I believe in the judgment. Let me say it again. I believe in a great judgment when we shall all stand before the judgment bar of God. I believe in the final judgment. I believe in the books of record. I believe that while I am saved by grace alone, I am judged by my works. Did you hear that, brother? Did you know it says in Revelation 20 that the sea gave up the dead that was in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead that, they were, that was in them, and they were judged every man according to his works. Did you know, and people say, this is a fearful idea that one day I will stand in the presence of God and be judged by my works. You say that's legalism? No, that is the legality of the judgment of God. Why should I be judged by my works? Because my works show what sort of person I am. My works do not save me, but my works show in the judgment whether I am genuine or whether I am a make-believe. Now in the judgment, none of us will be able to plead our righteousness or our works as the basis of our salvation. It can only be through the blood of Jesus. But the doctrine of the judgment is God's antidote to the doctrine of cheap grace that all you need to do is raise your hands and shout hallelujah. It's more than that. God justifies none whom he cannot sanctify. And so there's the doctrine of the judgment and then there is the doctrine of Babylon which is the great apostate system of religion. Then the Bible goes on and talks about the beast, the antichrist, the mark of the beast, and the image of the beast. The beast is the great confederation of church and state. 
The mark of the beast is the change of the holy law of God. And the image of the beast is the great copy of the church of the dark ages that we spoke about last Sabbath. And these are present day issues. And they must be preached. And let me say this to the people on 3ABN because I appreciate them and I respect uh, 3ABN, 3 Angels Broadcasting Network, because Danny and Linda believe in the preaching of the 3 Angels messages and they have a little bit of sanctified courage to stand up for what they believe in. I believe that when we go to Pasadena, we are to preach that message that I've read to you there. Even about the beast. Mm -hmm. I can remember in the Philippines when we ran in the city of Manila, in the Filipino International Conference Center, a great theater that seated, I think, about 6,000. We had multiple sessions, thousands, often outside one night, 10,000 people trying to get in who couldn't get in. I remember when I preached on Daniel 7 and Revelation 13, that the Filipino government was so so protective or so concerned one way or the other that they put guards around the inside of the building with machine guns but we didn't need them because we had angels as you know patience is not my strongest trait my mother said to me you should take as your text thou hast need of patience and I know that But I become impatient with those people who are bureaucrats and who criticize us who preach the message. I can remember when we preached that message in the Philippines, the place was filled with the de devoted servants of that great system that has ruled that country for many years. And people warned me about it. They said, don't preach those things. I said, how can I not? Give me a way out. Well, they said, camouflage it so nobody understands it. Hmm. I get all types of counsel. All types of counsel. Camouflage it so nobody will understand it. Or, or go away on holidays. I, I've had people come to me and they say, don't preach those things. I've even been told, if you preach those things, you'll be destroyed and we will destroy your career in the church. I've had that. I've had it said to me. I've been told this. This is what will happen to me. I've been told this. But I've said I don't care because I'd rather be true to God than be true to the devil. Amen. You see? And in that meeting, I'll tell you what happened in that meeting when we preached. Bob, give me a little more sound, please. When I preached that message, we didn't know what was going to happen Beverly and I had a special prayer. My team met with me. I told her we, we made out, I made out my will because I, I thought I may be killed tonight. But when I went out and preached that message, the Spirit of God came into that meeting with such force that there was the silence of the grave. You couldn't hear a thing. And when I would got through preaching that message, I wondered what would happen when I revealed the truth about this. You know what happened? The whole audience. In, in fact, there were so many people trying to get in that the conference president came to me, Pastor Vilioso, and he said, I have to make a strange announcement. 
I've got to ask all our church people who are here to get up and leave. So he asked all of the Adventists to get out of the meeting so others could get in, which was good. And after I preached that, that message, I wondered what would happen. Members of the Marcus family sat down the front. Eric, President Marcus's son, was there. The generals of the army. You know what happened? I say this to the glory of God. The whole audience stood to their feet and gave me a standing applause. They just clapped and clapped and clapped and clapped. They said, thank God that somebody will come and tell us the truth and not pull the wool over our eyes any longer. So I believe that message must be preached. Let me say this, it's got to be preached with love. It's got to be preached in the love of the cross. We should not be attacking people. We don't need to talk about organizations by name, but we need to preach the truth. And if you wrap it up in the blood of the cross, people are not going to get offended, but they're going to get saved. Now the Bible says, here is the patience of the saints. That's one text I've got to work over for a long time. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those that keep the commandments of God. In this context, when it talks about the commandments of God, it includes the seventh day Sabbath. Because in the context of Revelation chapter 14, where you have the term, the testimony, the commandments, and the covenant all together, it always means one thing, and the, the vast majority of Bible scholars agree with me. Here it refers to the commandments of God, the ten, including the Sabbath. And so God looks down upon the world, and he says, here they are. I believe that in the last days, God is going to bring people from every church, from the great Roman Catholic Church, from the great Protestant churches, and God is going to call out a people, and when they have been called out, he's going to say, here they are, my saints. They keep the commandments of God, and they have the faith of Jesus. And then after the message is preached, then comes deliverance, and then comes the final holocaust. I want you to notice the last verses, the fifth, the sixth, the fourth, the fifth, and the six angels, the last three angels. Verse 13 and onwards. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So the Bible teaches that when a person dies, he sleeps. And I looked and behold a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, in his hand a sharp sickle. This is Jesus coming. And another angel. Now here's the fourth angel. This chapter has the three angels of warning, now the three angels of judgment. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. This is the reaping of the saints of God. This is deliverance. This angel comes not as an angel of vengeance, but as an angel of deliverance. And the earth is reaped and the saints are saved. But read on. 
Then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. This is judgment. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully wroth, fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. And you say to me, uh, what on earth is it talking about? The city here is the city of Jerusalem as described by the prophet Ezekiel. The city of Jerusalem here represents the camp of the saints. And the Bible says that in the last days, the forces of apostate Christianity joining forces with the world will come up against the church of God, the new Jerusalem. And the Bible says the angels of vengeance come down and there is a mighty slaughter. This is Armageddon. And this is the end of the world. These three angels that we normally ignore come in response to the three angels who deliver the last message to the world. So, my message to you, even though it's a very strong one, is also about as simple as I can think of. It's, it's simply this. What camp shall I be in? That's what it is. Shall I be with the saints of God? Shall I be with the people whose mouths are clean and whose souls are pure, who are covered by the blood of the Passover lamb? Or shall I be with the great class of individuals who follow the teachings of men, whatever religion that might be? Who follow the commandments of, of men and the traditions of men and who eventually will prostitute their souls and who will become harlots and who will worship the beast and who will get the wrath of God. So there are two classes and only two. Blood is mentioned in this chapter. Firstly, the blood of the Lamb that saves, and secondly, the blood of the grapes of wrath. And so it behoves us as those whom I believe would wish to be saved to ask ourselves the searching, pertinent question, what group? That is my message. What group? The saints or the slanderers? 144,000, the virgins, or the great multitude who follow the beast? Therefore, what should I do? We should make it plain. I should know personally in my own heart that I am saved 
that I have accepted the true gospel of Christ and that my works evidence that I am a child of God. It is to such a calling and to such a devotion and to such a salvation that in the name of Christ I summons you today.